Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Mike Volkov brings 35 years of legal experience. Matt Kelly is the founder and editor of Radical Compliance. Jay Rosen is Mr. Monitor who knows his way around the culture of compliance. And Jonathan Armstrong, a partner at Cordery Compliance in London, rounds out this top group of compliance practitioners. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. On this episode of Everything Compliance, we have Mike Volkoff talking about food safety regulation and enforcement in the Bluebell and Chipotle case. Jonathan Marks joins us as a guest panelist to discuss overconfidence as a board risk. Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, talks about the compliance hiring market. Our colleague Jonathan Armstrong from Quarterly Compliance in London talks about COVID-19 and possibilities of corruption. And finally, Jay Rosens, Mr. Monitors himself, talks about what monitorships and oversight will look like in the new normal of the reopening after the coronavirus health crisis. I know you will enjoy this episode. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Jonathan Armstrong, what's on your mind? Well, I've been thinking, I've, I've actually taken inspiration from something you said in the last podcast, Tom, where we were talking about how what we do now is going to be viewed in the future. So the actions we take now in a crisis are viewed maybe in five, six years' time when we're not in a crisis. And human emotion, I think, is such that people think it can't have been as bad as we think it is now. And with that in mind, I thought it would be useful to look at things like uh, corruption specifically, obviously something that's always high, on a compliance officer's agenda. But my perception is that many compliance officers have been asked to do different things recently. Many of the compliance officers we know, for example, are taking a full role in the COVID uh, um, response team. But it's important, I think, not to let bribery go. Partly, I think, because the circumstances mean that bribery will be much more likely. Now, I think it's important, as we've said before on these podcasts, for every organization to look internationally at uh, bribery. So even if your own, uh, the law in your own home country doesn't prohibit bribery, then other jurisdictions likely will. And obviously, from my UK perspective, there is relatively little difference between bribing somebody who's in a private corporation versus a public official. And with that in mind, I think, the issues around bribery become front and centre in this current crisis. And I've just got sort of seven things that might make the risk higher in the current crisis. First of all, I think that some public officials might make greater demands for money, particularly because they're earning less and particularly because they might have more time to ask for money. You know, if I'm a a relatively low-ranking customs official at a port, if there's less stuff going through the port, then I might be 
you know, I've got more time on my hands to touch people up for money. Secondly, I think that uh, quite often at the moment, organizations are trying to procure scarce supplies. We're probably all getting at least one email a day from a Chinese spammer offering to sell us face masks. And some corporations cannot reopen their facilities until they've bought stuff like sanitizer gel, PPE, tape for the floors, et cetera, et cetera. And whenever you've got competition for supply, either the price goes up or people demand kickbacks or both. So I think that increases the risk as well. And even governments are getting this wrong. You know, the UK government, for example, bought a load of goods from Turkey. I'm not suggesting that corruption was involved, although I do have suspicions from what I know about that transaction, but certainly substandard equipment was uh, purchased as a result. Thirdly, I think the return to work could also cause issues. Uh, I've been tracking the return to work in places like China, where public officials will give you a um, maximum permitted occupancy number for some buildings. And again, there's a potential for corruption there. If an official says to you, you can only have uh, 20 of your 100 employees in the building at any one time. However, we can do an expedited inspection of the facility, which might get you up to 40. My suspicion is that many people on the ground would be tempted to pay that expedition fee but who knows what it is? Who knows where the money's going? Who knows how official that is? Um, uh, additionally, I think that uh, these issues increase where there are multiple levels of local bureaucracy. So generally speaking, you tend to look at a triangle type situation in some jurisdictions with relatively low officials in local government uh, 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 positions uh, taking bribes and the and the guy at the state level and the guy at the the federal level as well and obviously some of the jurisdictions that are coming back on stream now have those uh, layers of government which makes uh, bribery more uh, likely uh, fifthly i think obviously there's a, a a number of criminal gangs who are exploiting the situation there's a quite interesting article on the BBC last week, which talks about um, the crisis preparedness of the mafia in Sicily and, uh, uh, and people effectively saying that the mafia was somewhat better prepared than the Italian government to exploit the situation. So obviously they're looking for things like new uh, ways of laundering money, picking up butchers' shops who are down on trade, et cetera, et cetera, to spread money around. Um, sixthly, I think there's that human temptation that because the compliance team aren't on the ground anymore, how do you enforce things from a distance? And when people think that nobody's looking over their shoulder, they'll often do uh, bad things. And I guess my last thing is, I think in many jurisdictions, there is an increase in lobbying activity currently. That might be the hospitality industry lobbying to be able to open hotels again. It might be 
similarly in the restaurant industry. It might be people asking for relaxations for their particular goods and services or expedited customs clearances or certification, all of those things. Again, when you're in a hurry and a crisis, then demands for money, I think, can be made uh, and accepted more readily. So it, it seemed to me that we were obviously in a strange situation for many reasons, but the increasing uh, potential of bribery is something that we have to look out for particularly. And then it seemed to me that there were a couple of other areas where uh, we should probably particularly have uh, due regard for the issues. Charitable donations might be one. We've seen that charitable donations can go astray. You know, we've had cases like uh, Ibori with Delta State in Nigeria, where money for things like uh, Ebola uh, vaccinations was diverted to, you know, buying a Gulfstream jet instead. Uh, and we've also seen in cases like Airbus that bribes can be uh, um misdescribed, if you like, as supporting not-for-profits. In, in, in the Airbus case, some of the bribes were described as medicine. So people use masking words. And I think it's easier, possibly, to hide bad things in a crisis. And particularly organizations need to be really forensic if they are giving money to good causes. Are they genuinely good causes? Or are they causes that are connected to individuals who we're hoping to contract with. Obviously, the risks of uh, uh, PEPs, making payments to PEPs, government officials, increases in this time because oftentimes those organizations who are better able to respond are better able to respond because they have connections in government. So I think there are many, many uh, issues as a result. I've had a, a, a thought for some um, steps that people can take to mitigate uh, the risk. And probably I'm just touching the tip of the iceberg in those uh, extra risks I see. But I just think it's a time for real uh, awareness at a time when I appreciate compliance officers are being spread in all directions. But again, back to your original point, I think from the last podcast, Tom, we've got to look at this with our hindsight goggles on now. How will this look? in six, seven, eight years' time, we've got to take steps now to understand the increased risk and take steps to prevent it. Jonathan, I just wanted to chime in with uh, two yeah. comments. First, um, I have not received any emails from Chinese businessmen trying to sell me face masks, so I do feel left out. But well, then I'll send, I'll send you some momentarily. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, what, you, what you're talking about there with these risks, uh, I hear this a lot from compliance officers, that the risk itself is not really new. Like, okay, paying a bribe to get a permit, that's not news. People have seen that forever in a day. But yeah. um, now we are going to wind up bumping up against different types of employees uh, who are working with different types of regulators we haven't encountered before. So yeah. they are scrambling to figure out, okay, my risk assessment has gone haywire now. And there's all sorts of new processes or touch points coming into it that I'd never really had to think about before. I hear that comment a lot from compliance officers these days, that their COVID risk assessment is much bigger and out of sorts than what they had previously done. But yes. you know, you're spot on. 
No, that's definitely true. And 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 just looking at our practice, for example, Matt, we've been asked to train some HR professionals in uh, in in you know spotting the signs of bribery. Why? Because traditionally in this organisation, the HR professionals haven't really bought much. They've bought you know recruiters, and that's more or less all that they've bought on the ground in the country. But they're now char- in charge of the return to work plan, so they're having to deal with public officials. They've never had that responsibility in this particular corporation previously. So you're exactly right. The risks might not be completely different. I think the volume is, the propensity is, and it's the fact that that it's a different environment for those regulators and for those people in the corporation who are interfacing with them. Jonathan Marks, could you maybe speak to the need for uh, robustness or perhaps re-emphasis of internal controls based on what Jonathan Armstrong said? Yeah, Tom. Um, Jonathan, great points. Um, you know, one of the things that I think we need to be cognizant of especially now, is shortcutting or overriding of internal controls. Um, You know, are we getting sufficient, relevant, and reliable evidence supporting these transactions? I I think there's a propensity out there just to kind of get things done, just for the sake of checking them off and kind of moving through a process. And I think, you know, that's one of the things where I think we can add some real value as compliance professionals is reminding folks that we can't take those shortcuts and we do need, you know, that type of evidence supporting these particular transactions. Um, I think the other thing there that I think we need to be cognizant of is that, um, as you mentioned, we should not stop training. You know, you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, HR people taking on a new role. Those types of things, you know, to me, uh, you know, are, are really important in an environment like this. And even if it's a half an hour training on red flags, what to look for and having those things articulated to the HR professionals, I think, is really critical. And then the last point I wanted to make was, you know, Matt talked about the risk assessment, the fraud risk assessment. Um, you know, I, re- I re-released that, my recipe for a fraud risk assessment on my blog this week, only because I've been asked 45 times, you know, uh, you know, how do we really take a look at our fraud risk assessment? But more importantly, and I think this goes back to where you have crisis management and crisis planning, is in your business continuity plan, there are different fraud risks that will either be there as a result of you being in that mode or emerge very quickly or appear very quickly that weren't there before. And I think what people are realizing is that they have missed that in their planning. And so I think there's some lessons to be learned here for sure. But when you're doing your business continuity plan, you should go back and revisit your fraud risk assessment because not only might those risks be, you know, in play there, or there might be some greater velocity of that risk coming to fruition or impacting the organization. New risks might actually emerge based on the fact that we are in a business continuity mode, you know, kind of going forward. So I think they're great points. Matt Kelly, uh, you have written about the compliance hiring market, and uh, one of the points you raised that I thought uh, was interesting is, uh, are we now going to channel George Orwell and his big brother here due to COVID-19 and compliance hiring? So what are you seeing in the compliance job market? Yeah, so this has been interesting. Um, You know, on one hand, there is no doubt that the compliance job market stinks. Uh, There are 
plenty of compliance officers who have been losing their jobs lately, either because of COVID-19 and its economic recession consequences, or because of the oil market, which has crashed, and hammered energy firms, which have been a mainstay of compliance employment for many years now. Both of those things happen at once. So I know some compliance officers who have lost their jobs. I'm sure um, you guys on the call do. I'm sure many of our listeners do. Uh, At the same time, I have noticed, as I am continuing to publish the compliance jobs report that I publish every Friday, it keeps on going, and there's still a lot of hiring activity. And both of these extremes seem to be true at the same time. So that was intriguing to me. And uh, what I wound up doing was calling around to a few recruiters I know, just to hear from them, what is going on with compliance hiring right now? And they came back to me with a few points that I thought people might like to hear about. Uh, First, a lot of them are saying the hiring market is frozen or paused. Those are typically the words they're using. Uh, But the, the compliance jobs market is not wrecked or shrinking, as in compliance jobs are going away forever. Um, you know, they are basically saying anywhere from half to three quarters of the recruitment placement orders that they either have or were expecting to get, the company is calling them up to say, we're just going to wait on that for a few months to see how things shake out. But very few are saying, cancel that order because we have eliminated this compliance officer position. Um, so I thought that was interesting. It is a great unknown because we are not sure how the COVID-19 crisis is going to unfold for the rest of the year. But I know some recruiters who think after the instability period we are in right now stabilizes, uh, they would not be surprised if they see some of those frozen jobs unfreeze and maybe some hiring activity will resume toward the end of the year. Or uh, some of the more optimistic ones say that we would even see more of a rebound or resurgence either by the end of this year or early 21 if COVID does, in fact, you know, not hit us as hard as we had thought. There is no second wave. A vaccine drops out of the sky. Um, so I thought that was interesting. They also did talk a bit about, okay, most of it is frozen, but who is still hiring? Uh, two points. Um, I have seen or heard that if it is a quote-unquote priority search, that is still happening. And what is a priority search? It's generally going to be a company that might be under some sort of regulatory pressure or oversight where not having a compliance officer on the payroll would be really bad. So if you are hip deep in negotiations on a deferred prosecution agreement or something like that, or you're about to announce that You do have an effective compliance program, so we don't need monetary penalties, right, Mr. Prosecutor? But then you're eliminating your CCO job. That's going to look bad. So that kind of priority hire, that's still going to get pushed through. And I have heard that from job seekers as well who have been – some of them have been very surprisingly fortunate in my estimation at how many offers they're either getting or they're in negotiations with. And they're saying, no, no, the board is telling the CFO – you can't leave this open. We will look awful if we try and get away with that. Fill that job. Um, and then others are also saying that there are certain sectors or types of jobs that are still getting a lot of uh, interest. A lot of healthcare, a lot of pharma, a lot of life sciences. Not necessarily a surprise, especially in life sciences. Those companies never make any money for years before they hit a profit. So what's not making any money in COVID-19? It's not any different to them. So they're still hiring. 
And I do see that in the job, uh, new job news that I see on LinkedIn or job openings that I hear about or I see come across the compliance jobs report. There's definitely still a lot there in the biotech, healthcare industry somehow like that. Um, and then a couple of people actually were saying that consulting firms are hiring. I know consulting is not necessarily for everyone. Uh, I know it can be less than ideal if you're on a contract basis. Uh, and of course, the consulting firms might be hiring because the co companies are laying off and they still need that work done. So now they outsource it to a consulting firm. And I also know there are a lot of consulting firms that are also cutting salaries or furloughing people. So it's a mess. It's incoherent. Uh, that was one big thing that I heard about with the jobs market. Um, I did hear also, or I did some research about compliance salaries. Uh, compliance officers might be interested to know that compliance salaries for your jobs are all over the map. I looked through four or five different big job recruiting websites for what is the average or median salary for a compliance officer right now. Uh, one of them quoted me 235000 Another one quoted me 148000 a year. Um, Payscale.com came in at the lowest uh, with a piddling little 119800 plus bonus. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't know what to make of the salary figures. There seems to be a wide discrepancy, even when we're looking at a similar title in a similar industry or in similar big cities with roughly the similar cost of living, I can come up with wildly different salary estimates for chief compliance officer or other big compliance roles. Um, so the recruiters I talked to, they also were saying, yeah, this is a mess. We don't really necessarily know what's going on there. Um, and Tom, to your point there about the big brothers and the virtual interviews. So for those of you who are seeking jobs right now, the recruiters did tell me this is going to be a thing for a while, is that you're going to do much more virtual job interviews. I know that is not necessarily news in a lot of professions. We've had virtual interviews, especially for lower level jobs, uh, but we're going to see more and more of that. Um, you could see more video interviews with more people within an organization you're looking at, because if you can't have an in-person interview where somebody is looking at the body language and getting a sense of how could I work with this person sitting next to me. If that interpersonal sense isn't available because you're not meeting in person, they might decide to let's spread out the risk by having them do video interviews with twice as many people in the company, uh, which of course means you're going to take longer to get that hiring cycle done, which is probably longer anyways, because the job market is not good. Um, and then the weird thing and compliance listeners, if this has happened to you, I would love to know what this is like psychometric testing and evaluation during your virtual job interview. So you're going to wind up doing written tests or analysis of a text or play logical games or something like that. All the weird stuff that Google does for its engineers before they hire them. Maybe we're going to see that in compliance officer interviews. I don't know what that would look like. I would love to know what that looks like. So if this has happened to you, drop me a line and tell me the details. I'll keep you anonymous, but I think that is fascinating. Um, but there's a lot that is interesting in, in this state of flux. So it is, like I said at the beginning, it's true that A, the market stinks, and B, there's still a lot of activity. Both things are true right now at the same time. It's, uh, it's quite something. Matt, do you see any industries, geographic areas, or some other defined unit that's actually uh, bullish on hiring at this point? 
I, uh, I was about to say yes until you got to bullish and define bullish. Um, but which ones are doing the most hiring compared to others? It's definitely going to be life sciences, pharma, healthcare. I think anybody who is involved in a quest for COVID-19 vaccines or treatments, uh, there's a lot of action there. Um, that's fresh on my mind because just down the street from me is a company called Moderna Pharmaceuticals. Moderna is hot on the trail of a new vaccine, and they just landed a funding agreement for $400 million uh, to expand whatever vaccine they might perfect in the next few months. Like, think of the compliance challenge that that sort of a startup would have. And they have been looking for a chief compliance officer in the last couple of weeks. Um, but any company that is involved in a COVID response, that's going to be really big and complicated, and they are looking for compliance officers. Um, I have heard that financial services is continuing to trim its compliance hiring, although that is not new. They've been looking to do that for the last couple of years. I think that is accelerating with the slowdown from COVID-19. Um, and then, as I mentioned, the energy and oil and gas, they're, like, they're on the back foot in a big way. So, the layoffs or job cuts that I have heard about in compliance ranks, it's at energy firms, it's at retail firms. Um, the ones I've heard about hiring, they're in pharma, they're in biotech, they're to a lesser extent in healthcare, although a lot of healthcare businesses are also suffering because other than COVID treatments, they don't have any other business just yet. Um, so it's a mix, but that's what's going on. Jonathan Marks, in your fraud Pentagon, you bring up that characteristic or tr character trait of arrogance as one of the indicia for fraud. But recently you wrote about overconfidence at the board level. And so I was wondering if you might be able to expand on that a little bit and, and help us understand why boards are overconfident and what they can do to ameliorate that condition. Well, I think it kind of goes back to um, the fact that, you know, we don't know what we don't know, right? And so I think if you go back and look at some of the cases recently with regards to, let's just say, you know, a dairy, I'm not going to mention the one, but in Caremark, where, you know, the board might have had some, some, you know, some indications of what was going on, but really, you know, didn't, didn't really understand completely what the compliance program looked like. You know, they probably were overconfident that management was doing what they should have been doing. Um, I think this is inherent in people. I mean, we all want to do a good job. You know, Warren Buffett said it best, when the tide rolls out, you see who's swimming naked. And so, you know, I believe a lot of these individuals that are out there that are in these positions are afraid to expose themselves for things that they don't know. And that's where I think that separates sort of the wheat from the shaft in that, you know, all the compliance professionals that I know, are the ones that we're having regular interactions with and they're sharing knowledge back and forth because they just don't know everything and you can't know everything and things change on a rapid basis. But there's a real danger at the board level in, um, in, in for a couple different reasons. Number one is when you have senior leadership that actually thinks they can do things and they can and the, and the board actually believes that they can do things and there's that lack of self-awareness, I think that's when there's a real problem. And we see that more and more and more and more when you really dip down and, and, and look at the skill sets of some of these individuals that are charged with either developing compliance programs or internal audit plans and the like, you know, um, we find out at some point that they really don't have the full depth and breadth of skills and they're not utilizing professionals in a way 
to augment those skills. You know, the biggest compliment I can make to any, you know, CEO, board member out there is when they don't know something, they go seek to find, they seek to understand. They hire somebody to go, they hire somebody to, you know, advise them on what should be. Um, and so that, you know, they gain better knowledge. So, you know, I, I hope I answered your question, but I think this is a real issue. And what I'm really talking about is the Dunning-Kruger effect. And it's something that I spoke at, you know, uh, a couple times, spoke about last year a couple different times. And the more I keep seeing what's going on with some of these things, I often wonder whether, you know, we're not living in a world where this is really pervasive. Is one of the keys to this simply uh, a rigorous inquiry or, or even as basic as asking questions? I think so. I, I you know, I, you know, uh, I remember probably 12 or 14 years ago, somebody asked me, you know, what constitutes a good board member. And obviously, you know, we have the old adage, you know, today, I mean, maybe a little bit different on our crisis situation. I'll get to that for a second. But there's this old adage, you know, sort of eyes open, nose in, fingers off, right? Um, you know, board should really function in an oversight capacity and shouldn't, you know, really cross over that, 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 that white line into management and making management, you know, decisions. But, you know, I also think there's a couple of other things that go along with that. Number one is I think board members should be curious and ask good questions on a regular and frequent basis. I mean, you know, even if things appear to be okay, you know, I think they should dip down and, and, and figure out why are they working? You know, are we including everything here? You know, is this really complete and accurate? Uh, I think that's the job of a board member. And I think it's, it should be, you know, standard fair time to be quite candid with you. But, um, you know, you know, being curious and, and, uh, and asking good questions, I don't think ever really hurts. Jay Rosen, you have been thinking about, writing about, and talking about monitorships, obviously, for quite some time. In fact, you're even named Mr. Monitors. So uh, what's the monitorship going to look like in the new normal? Great question, Tom. Thanks for asking. Um, I've got a couple different uh, perspectives to share with you uh, based on two stories I read in the media over the last two weeks. And I hope to get a little cinematic here. On uh, April 14th of this year, the Wall Street Journal's Risk and Compliance Journal published an alarming article entitled, Coronavirus Hubble's Corporate Compliance Monitoring. And the second line adds more detail. Lockdowns and curbs on travel have scuttled a crucial part of supervision, the on-site visit. Sounds pretty serious. Maybe the gig is up on this corporate compliance thing. Let's read on, shall we? The article goes on to tell the reader about how lockdowns intended to blunt the spread of coronavirus are delaying the work of corporate monitors who rely on visits to companies and access to sensitive data to ensure that regulated mandated changes to compliance regimes are being upheld. With travel restricted as well, monitors have reached for digital tools to continue their work. True. And we will come back to that point about the digital tools. And here's the zinger. But observing corporate culture and day-to-day operations at a virtual remove is less than ideal. That's true as well. Next, we hear from an AMLAW 100 white-collar crime partner who rues the fact that corporate monitors may no longer have on-site visits and may not be able to see how company employees interact and relate. As many of you know, corporate monitors, like my colleagues at Affiliate Monitors, are independent compliance experts appointed by regulators, usually as part of a settlement. 
Monitorships vary in scope and duration, and each requires the submission of work plans for regulator approval months ahead of time. The plan usually includes site visits and reports based partly on direct observation of the company culture. So far, so good. But here's the kicker. For now, things are no longer more than, quote, plodding along, unquote. Recently appointed monitors, those just getting to know the company and developing plans, will likely face the biggest hurdles, adds a managing director at a financial crime compliance consultancy. More mature monitorships might benefit from this period to write up observations and reports and conduct analysis. Prior to the pandemic, most site visits were periodic, lasting one to two weeks at a stretch, reviewing transactions, conducting in-person interviews, and then off-site for two to three months. In other instances, a monitor might pop into a company more frequently once a week or once a month to attend meetings and make contact. On-site visits were usually complemented by remote reviews, such as analyzing data of transactions and records of relationships with third parties with the help of data uploads and using a shared site. Global privacy laws, which can restrict how or whether a company can share data, had resulted in more on-site visits in recent years. But with travel largely halted, companies have become more willing to set up secure interfaces to let monitors access data as well. COVID-19 has really poured gasoline on the video conferencing process. Both the quality of the technology and the distribution of technology and the comfort of everybody with these technical abilities to larger conferences has increased exponentially over the last few weeks. Hmm, that actually sounds like a positive to me. Got to be some bad news coming up soon. Still, virtual meetings cannot replace the immediacy of a face-to-face encounter or an office visit, either of which provides greater clarity on a company's operations and whether its compliance program is having any effect. Hmm, that sounds like a quote from AMLAW 100 talking again. There are some things that video conferencing may not reveal. For example, the kind of evaluation determining how seriously compliance is being taken and whether employers are telling the truth. It's much harder to see this on video. Now it's time to switch gears for a moment. And I would like to share with you some uh, excerpts from an article from May 8th by Bill Desowitz on a website called IndieWire entitled, The Mandalorian Leads the Way. Real-time virtual production is saving Hollywood during the lockdown. Real-time virtual production tools are paving the way for a brave new world beyond this pandemic. While production has been halted during the lockdown, virtual production is saving the industry, thanks in large part to real-time virtual reality innovations of John Favreau's The Lion King and his Disney Plus series, The Mandalorian. Thus, work continues remotely on VFX-intensive features and TV shows, as supervisors and artists perform virtual scouting and scene planning with directors and other filmmakers from the comforts of their home using Zoom and Slack. And when production eventually resumes, they will be able to hit the ground running and using these indispensable tools, which will pave the way for a brave new world where social distancing reduces the size and scope of location suits, set builds, and crowd scenes for the foreseeable future. Rob Legato, a VFX supervisor from The Lion King and the Jungle Book, shares the story. As much as it's great to be in the same room with people, sometimes you don't need to be there. He has a setup in his basement similar to The Lion King with a dolly, a handheld camera, pan and tilt wheels, and uses the Unreal game engine with an operator on Google Meet. 
It's going to be the wave of the future. No question about it, Legato said. And people are really interested in now during the lockdown. It's hastening acceptance because of its ability to do it and be socially distant still. The emergence of LED walls as part of virtual production arsenals enable more real-time interactivity and collaboration across teams on the show. It establishes a created sandbox where every department can participate in real-time rather than the traditional linear decision-making. But it's the flexibility and versatility of virtual production that will enable it to step up in a post-pandemic world. It's going to become a new baseline for planning with a group of department heads scouting a real location or a virtual location that doesn't exist. Virtual reality allows a group experience. And one of the messages that we want people to understand is that I'm doing it from my house. It doesn't require a big motion capture stage. While ramping production back up is obviously where the focus is now, we are in the middle of an era of unprecedented growth in content production and virtual production can be an asset. The more we augment the onset environment to include elements or not even final shot elements, the more we can de-risk the creative process up front and deliver the closest possible version of what the director envisions. Social distance practices and travel restrictions are very complicated issues to resolve for live action productions. Virtual production tools could be used on hybrid sets to offset health risks, but these will always be weighted against cost. In the short term, we are probably more likely to see shots moving to full computer graphics to help reduce shoot days or replace entire locations. For us and many facilities, these workflows offer stability and predictability, two things that currently are in short supply. So let's get back to our corporate monitorship that is plodding along due to travel restrictions from COVID-19. Both the corporate monitoring and motion picture businesses are suffering setbacks due to social distancing and travel bans. While team on-site corporate monitor decries the limitations of Zoom and video conferencing, team virtual reality VFX is using similar technology tools that they have the ability to leverage virtual reality to pre-visualize complex cinematic elements at the same time while saving global film productions from having to travel large crews to expensive faraway locations. So if it's good enough for the next Marvel superhero extravaganza or James Cameron's long anticipated Avatar films, surely there must be a tool that the compliance community can adopt and adapt from our motion pictures brothers and sisters. Now, I know that investigating purists like my everything compliance colleague, Jonathan Marks, will definitely have something to add to team on-site corporate monitoring interviews. But in this current reality of COVID-19, video conferencing is the best solution we have to approximate on-site interviews. Yes, there is a different feeling from being on camera. There's a distancing effect. Maybe the interviewer will not always be able to get a true read and might miss the subtext of what an interviewing is saying. But at the same time, interviewing someone from your home office or dining room may create a less formal attitude and provide a greater opportunity for your interviewee to have that speak up moment. Let me circle back to the travel aspect for corporate monitorships. Let's say the monitoring company is a global manufacturing concern that this year has scheduled on-site visits to Spain, France, England, Japan, India, and Mexico. Let's travel a team of two monitors to each location for two and a half days. Well, you can start to see the numbers add up in your Excel spreadsheet. 
I begin to visualize compliance savings that since they are already part of your compliance budget, perhaps they may be reallocated to refresh your code of conduct that's been on hold since the last since the end of last year. Just saying. But all kidding aside, the short-term video conferencing explosion that we've seen over the past three months is just a hint of the productivity gains that corporate monitors and monitorships may see in the coming months due to forced creativity and improved technology. We have so we have so many passionate and creative practitioners in our field, and I personally cannot wait to see what the future brings. Bye-bye plotting, and hello, brave new compliance. Jonathan Armstrong, do you have a question for Jay? Yeah, I do. A, a question and a, a, and a comment, I suspect. Uh, those dreaded words we hear at conferences. Um, <laughs> the, um, I've uh, been in the position of having to do a small investigation remotely, and I echo a lot of what you said. Uh, this particular investigation, I thought um, it it, it wasn't regulator-led, so we had some flexibility. And I thought in the end, reluctant though we were to do it that way, by interviewing people in their home environment, we actually got more out of them. I think they felt safer uh, to say things that I don't think they would have said face-to-face -face in a formal interview. So I, I realize that we're not in normal and we're not in perfect. But the other thing that struck me, I think, and I'd be interested in your views on this, Jay, I just spoke to, uh, just before uh, our um, session today, I just spoke to a global compliance officer in a well-known uh, technology business, and they're telling their people that they will not be returning to the office until October. If you look at things like travel bans, which generally will follow on from that, we might not be traveling again between offices until November, December. I think in my world, you can't sit on issues that long. You know, no issue gets, you know, there's only, I don't know, wine gets better by maturation. Compliance issues do not get better if you put them in a cellar. Um, is it the same in, in your world as well, Jay? I mean, I imagine that memories will fade in a, six month time and and also there are some issues that you've just got to address haven't you yeah I, and i think that's why we're seeing people decrying what's happened over the last three months is that they're still living in the old world and that old world has gone by so especially if you're contemplating a merger and acquisition transaction you need to be doing that due diligence on the target to see if you're buying a potential FCPA liability. So you can either whine about it or the future is going to go by. So uh, you cannot table those things for six months. And the other thing that Tom and I have talked about in the past is uh, with your workforce being forced to work from home now, there are a lot of different issues now that pop up about uh, communication between the home office and those folks who are telecommuting. So those are also issues that are really important that I think you can resolve by social um, tools such as Zoom and even, you know, the conference bridge we're using. We're able now to bring in people from all over the world to have this kind of conversation. And I think we're all uh, sneakily getting better at doing this. So I, I still would like to hear from Jonathan about what he thinks about the other Jonathan vis-a-vis -vis the uh, the how how good we can get right now with uh, 
Zoom and other uh, virtual camera technology. Uh, I'll, I'll make some brief comments. I know we're kind of up to, you know, almost close to time and Mike has to go, but um, it's challenging sometimes, Jay, to be quite candid with you. I mean, uh, you know, we've done video interviews for a while now, and uh, I just finished an investigation where, you know, we were forced to do video interviews. Obviously, being live in, and in person is, is sort of the best thing because you get to see sort of the visceral response that people have you know, their body language, how they react when you pass evidence to them and the like. But, um, you know, I think that the technology is going to have to change um, and, and, and accommodate us. Um, I've actually reached out to one of the video companies myself and, and suggested some new solutions, you know, for conducting interviews of this type. Um, there are also some other tactics and strategies that I think you have to take while you're doing a video interview. Um, I think you probably have to be, you know, just as prepared as if you were when you were live, you know, you have to be professional, you know, you have to afford the interviewee the same amount of breaks. The one thing that I'm always concerned about is recording and taking pictures of certain things, you know, from a privilege or confidentiality perspective. So, I mean, these are all things that you really have to do when it comes to upjohn warnings. You know, one of the things that we did was we used DocuSign and we sent them a DocuSign document you know, while we were doing the interview and had them execute on that to send back so that we can actually mark that as, you know, our, you know, our proof that we did read them, the corporate Miranda. Um, there's a there's a bunch of different techniques, and I'm sure that most of the people out there right now are probably going through the same and similar. But, you know, I think from a technology perspective, I think it's, it's going to have to get better. Um, you know, when it comes to um, looking at somebody from a body language perspective, I think you still need two people conducting the interview, one focusing on, you know, sort of their visceral response to when you say things or show them evidence, you know, and, uh, you know, another person that's asking the question. So um, it, it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting uh, time that we're going through right now. But this, you know, it might be the next level that we're going to be in. I hate to say it's the new norm because I just don't like that, but I think it's sort of next level. And I think from an efficiency perspective, to be quite candid with you, I think you could save a lot of money if we um, figure out a way where we can do this uh, somewhat remotely. So, Mike Volkoff, over the past couple of months, we've had two of the largest food safety and health fines in that uh, industry ever. Uh, what do you see from these two fines? And in the uh, in view of the COVID nineteen health crisis, particularly around meat packing plants. What do these companies involved in food distribution need to start thinking about? Well, um, look, these two cases are important. But before I want to I want to comment on some of the earlier comments that everybody's made, which I think are really spot on. First, I think uh, we're in basically a new risk profile situation. And if we sort of look at it from the old lens, I think we're doing everybody a disservice and I think that's why, for example, Jonathan's point about we have to be vigilant still with regard to bribery is critical. Uh, I think um, in terms of business continuity, look, let's say right now that's look, let's say got to be one of the biggest issues facing everybody. And to me, compliance's role is really even more important right now in rebuilding what I call trust and safety. The biggest concern that everybody has is for their own safety, and I know I'm preaching the profound grasp of the obvious, but uh, look, until leadership does two things. One is to say, number one, we're going to have a safe workplace, but number two, we're still going to have a company here. 
And Jonathan's point, Marx's point about business continuity is that's what has basically risen to the top. And how do you assure people of safe uh, and trust? I mean, look, you had what was it? Boeing CEO just recently said, hey, what if what if our customers is going to go bankrupt? Well, geez, that's a really positive statement for the industry. Um, And he's been getting a lot of flack for that. So leadership has a lot of eyes on them right now, and they need to build trust. They need to show what the business continuity model is. And they need to also, going to what uh, Jay was talking about, assure everyone that we're still going to find wrongdoing. We're going to still pursue it. We're still going to monitor our program. And if anything, uh, the, the you know classic fraud triangle has turned into an exponential triangle. It's even more dangerous right now out there because people are feeling lonely, isolated, financial pressure, and there's probably even greater instances of fraud that can occur right now. I think we need to look at a new paradigm, and I call it the new risk profile, Um, And now, so these food safety cases, the reason I wrote about them, not only because they were the most important, but I also think that compliance, financial controls, compliance controls, we can learn a lot from safety. You know, there's usually a silo that's put into place between safety and financial controls. And I always think that we can learn from each other by cross-pollinating. And so these two cases are pretty important. The first we had was uh, was Bluebell ice cream. And, you know, Jonathan's more politic than I am because this is a, a classic case of just criminal conduct. And Bluebell Creameries is going to pay for this in more way than one. And if you read the recent information, criminal charges against the CEO, it will blow your mind in terms of here he deliberately uh, countermanded uh, programs to Uh, guarantee the safety of ice cream. And three people died as a result of the listeria outbreak. And perhaps Bluebell's biggest downfall is that Tom Fox told me he will never eat Bluebell ice cream again. And so you can imagine what their demand will look like. But Bluebell ended up paying $19.5 million uh, for their uh, failure to follow basic safety rules and regulations, resulting in three people being killed. Paul Cruz, uh, who took over from his uncle, uh, was the longtime CEO, and now he's indicted. And frankly, he should have been charged with uh, what I believe manslaughter because he knowingly avoided um, following their safety protocols, told people not to tell customers about any outbreaks. Go back and get sort of your product from the shelves, take it back, but lie to them as to what the reason is that we're taking it back. And even after the FDA and the CDC went after him, he denied, uh, they put out public statements denying that there was any problem and failing to acknowledge any problem. So in any event, uh, there's Bluebell. And then the second case that came out was, and this was the biggest, uh, was, and we all read about it years ago, was the Chipotle uh, Chipotle, uh, Mexican Grill case where they had workers who, you know, were sick and handling um, food. And that ultimately led to outbreaks in four communities of norovirus, which is not lethal, but nonetheless can make you quite sick. So... The bottom line with that case was, again, 
uh, I think Jonathan Marx's point about a board and about management just not asking questions, it turns out if they had sort of asked basic questions, they would have found out that lots of the restaurants in various regions were not file, following basic safety protocols. Like if somebody gets sick at your store, you send them home. So uh, all of these to me are cases, though, that I think set a precedent for uh, COVID-19 type of prosecutions that can uh, occur uh, down the road. Uh, I don't know if this administration is going to be aggressive about prosecuting COVID-19. We seem to have some issues as to whether or not uh, this administration is sort of acknowledging the full basis of the pandemic but in the, the full reaches of it. But I think it's something to watch out for. I think we got to be careful. Uh, one of the things in Bluebell, for example, was the board not only, uh, not only ignored the problem, they never had a board meeting about the whole problem when the emergency broke out. And they didn't even have a governance committee uh, on the board for food safety. All of these were cited as just massive deficiencies in the governance of Bluebell. Anyway, so it's an interesting time. I think look at these cases uh, for I'm going to be uh, for insights. I'm going to be posting this week about Paul Cruz and doing a podcast on the full nature of his sort of criminal activity. Uh, and it's kind of a, a lesson in how to be a bad guy. So, gentlemen, we are to the point where we have rants and shout outs. And why don't we go with the uh, same geographic order? So that means uh, Mr. Armstrong, Mr. Kelly, Mr. Marks, Mr. Rosen, and then concluding with Mr. Volkoff. So, uh, Jonathan Armstrong, do you have a rant and or shout out uh, for us? And we have to note your last epic rant uh, made <laughs> international news. So what do you got for us, Jonathan? Well, thanks so much. Yeah, after the epic rant, I'm, re I'm uh, returning to safer ground with a shout out. And uh, and for full disclosure, I'm uh, I'm shouting out Sakia Starmer, who's the new leader of the opposition in the UK. And for full disclosure, he went to the same law school as me. He's just a little bit ahead of me, and I've um, I, I, I've met him a couple of times. But this. I don't think influences my judgment that he's doing a really great job, I think, of holding Boris Johnson to account at the moment. He's doing it in a very dignified and professional way. I would recommend anybody with a dull 10 minutes or so to watch the, uh, it's called Prime Minister's Question Time, and watch the forensic way in which uh, Starmer is holding uh, Boris to account. Boris uh, is, um, I, I, as I say, I think he's doing it in a, in a fact-based manner. Um, Mr. Volkov, I think, would be proud of the cross-examination. Uh, this week, he uh, read from a piece of paper, uh, uh, which Boris said was absolute nonsense uh, and fiddlesticks or something like that. And then Starmer showed him the piece of paper, which had come from Boris's own office. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think um, uh, I, I'm going to sort of follow the Churchill momentum of of not criticizing my government abroad, but making up for it when I get home. But what I will say, I think, is that it's good from whatever side of the political equation you are to have 
politicians at this particular time be held to account. And that's not to start the post-mortem whilst the patient is still alive, but it's to check that the course has been set properly through the crisis. So my shout outs to Kia Starmer for doing a really professional and thorough job of holding the UK government to account. Kelly, do you have a rant and or shout out for us? Yeah, I have a um, a tepid rant, not a full-throated uh, outrage and denunciation, just a, a tepid rant. But the rant is against the New York Department of Financial Services. And Tom, you and Jay had mentioned uh, DFS and its issue here a couple of weeks ago on one of your podcasts, that DFS is suing Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals for insurance fraud under the theory that Mallinckrodt misrepresented the safety and effectiveness of its opioid drugs and was repeatedly overstating the benefits of long-term opioid treatment. So, of course, that pushed up the number of prescriptions Mallinckrodt was uh, issuing to New York State residents, which cost insurance firms more money and therefore insurance fraud against the firms and ultimately the consumers. Like That was the complaint that DFS had been po- pushing against Mallinckrodt. And like, I see the logic here, but no, this, this is just a bridge too far for me that I have no love for opioid makers, um, but this is a financial services regulator suing a pharmaceutical firm for what is essentially false advertising. And I think that is outside the range of what a financial services regulator should be doing. Um, If New York State Attorney General, if they were filing an action under some sort of consumer protection statute, I would say, knock yourselves out, go nuts. That's fine. That is not what is happening. Um, And I just think this is not the best use of DFS time. I am sure they have plenty of other misconduct that they could investigate that is much closer to their financial services purview and remit. Um, And this is just an overstretch for the agency. And that's the sort of thing that gives regulators a bad name in the eyes of uh, their corporate targets. So like DFS, give this to somebody else, give it to the AG's office and tell them to go crazy with it. But I just don't think that a financial regulator suing a drug maker for false advertising and construing it as insurance fraud against the public, like that's weird and we shouldn't do it. But that's my, my rant. Jonathan Marks, do you have a rant and or shout out for us? I don't know. I'm kind of benign this week. Well, let me dig myself up. And yeah, I, there we go. I don't know. I kind of had a rant and a shout out and kind of in between, but um, kind of a guy that I've been following. I'm, I have to profess I wasn't a big fan, but it seems to be a cheerleader for getting people back to work. Although I, I know that people want to get back to work. You know, I just, I just want, I want to make sure I think like everybody on, on today's podcast, everybody's safe and there's a good plan in place in order for us to do this. I don't know how long this is going to last, but, you know, certainly, uh, certainly interesting times. But, you know, Elon Musk, you know, to me was sort of singled out from a manufacturing perspective as not being able to produce his cars. And, you know, you know, other, I know other folks have sort of transitioned in not only building cars, but building other things. But, um, you know, I don't know whether it's a rant or a shout out, but uh, I certainly want to call out Elon Musk this week for kind of taking a stand and you know trying to get his uh, manufacturing back up, which I think he's going to do on Monday. Jay Rosen. Thanks, Tom. Uh, this is a guess is shout out, but it's really picking up some low hanging fruit. To my 
friends in Wisconsin who like to go to bars. Yes, we just got through two months of self-distancing. Uh, the epidemic that we are facing is a marathon, not a sprint. So you chuckleheads, you shouldn't be jumping around and sharing beer and swashing it all over each other. I would hate for us to retrace and go back and have to relive the two months again. Stay out of the bars. The liquor has a long shelf life. I'll deliver it to your house, but get away and keep the social distance on. Mic drop. Michael Volkoff. Kind of a shout out. We have a judge, an interesting judge in D.C. who I know quite well, Judge Sullivan, who's taking up the cause of uh, the Flynn case. Uh, I think it's really going to be an interesting proceeding because uh, uh, the real question for Mr. Flynn is going to be, were you lying then or are you lying now? Since he pled guilty twice and admitted the crime uh, twice under oath. So uh, Sullivan is no stranger to controversy. He handled the and sort of went outside the box when he went after the prosecutors involved in the prosecution of Senator uh, Ted Stevens. Uh, so he's a he's really out there and he's aggressive. And I suspect we're going to end up with a, a really interesting proceeding and a really interesting appeal because I think he's going to try to put Flynn in jail. Uh, and he's brought in a, perhaps a great judge from New York, who uh, former prosecutor Judge Gleason. Uh, and it's going to be an interesting proceeding. And if he is able to unearth or highlight some of the misconduct at DOJ that led to this filing, uh, I think it's going to be even more interesting. So uh, keep, uh, you know, stay tuned to Judge Sullivan. He's an interesting uh, and smart person. Well, gentlemen, this has been uh, yet another great episode of Everything Compliance. Uh, shout out to our colleague, Jonathan Marks, for uh, joining us again. We may have to see if we can make this more permanent, Mr. Marks. So uh, till next time, everybody, I look forward to it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. If you have any topics you'd like the Everything Compliance gang uh, take on, please email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com and we'll see if we can get your question or issue up on an upcoming episode. Also, if you could rate our podcast, I would greatly appreciate that. You can leave a comment on iTunes and a rating. And finally, if you would tell one person about our podcast, uh, going, growing our podcast organically is one of the best ways to do it. And I would appreciate if you would do that for us. Finally, I hope you're staying safe uh, and making good decisions in the era of COVID-19. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. I hope you'll join us again for our next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.